Amen. Yes, children can head on out. So thankful for our children's church workers. Glad our children can have the scripture taught on their level so they can understand it. Because they certain are, certainly are capable. And it's good for them to be able to take the truth of God, God's word and learn it on their level and apply it to their lives. Even, uh, even at this age. Let me just say a quick thank you uh, on behalf of our family for all of the wonderful kindnesses shown to us through the Christmas holidays and uh, as we enter into this new year. We truly are humbled uh, by all of it and uh, are very, very grateful. We're grateful to be able to minister here with you uh, now for these past eight years and into our ninth and uh, just thankful for all that God has done. And uh, you, you all are very kind to us and we, we are greatly appreciative of all of it and uh, the cards and the notes and we have a table that is still after six of us working on it all week full of baked goods and uh, so <laughs> we uh, we are have been well taken care of and satisfied in all of that so so thank you very very much take your Bibles won't you and turn to the book of Romans Obviously, we have a new slide up there, and, uh, you know, just as the calendar turns, I wasn't going to wait for a whole nother week. Um, we're just going to go ahead and launch on uh, New Year's Eve uh, with our uh, theme for this year, Faith on Display. And uh, really, it, uh, the way the, the, our preaching schedule came about, and um, we were able to, to get here into Romans chapter 12, where we will start, this is a pivotal part in the book. Uh, the hinge of the book really swings right here, and, uh, and I think you'll see that, and, and we'll talk about that in the days ahead. But the time that Paul writes, by the time he writes this letter to the church at Rome, he is well aware of the weaknesses and the temptations that are already plaguing early Christians in the church. The letter to the churches um, in Galatia. Uh, has already been written and sent. Um, the legalistic teaching of the Judaizers has been confronted. The, uh, the church at Thessalonica has received two letters from him, uh, focusing their attention on the coming, the return of Jesus Christ, comforting them um, and encouraging them to stay faithful through their suffering. He has written, Paul has, uh, Two letters, uh, at least the two inspired letters, probably more than that, but two inspired letters to the church at Corinth. And the issues addressed in those letters are numerous, including the morality and integrity within the lives of professing believers. All of this has transpired very, very quickly. The church by this time is barely 20 years, 25 years old. And after the comprehensive doctrinal treatise that is the first part of this letter, chapters 1 through 11, he now is going to turn his attention and the attention of his readers, our attention, to the application of those truths. The so what to the daily life of the believer. It's vitally important that we understand the doctrine. And through the years, big fancy names have been associated 
you know, with the various basic doctrines of Scripture. And it's good to understand that. It's good to know that it is founded in Scripture. But God doesn't just give that to us so that we can have academic and intellectual knowledge. It is to make a difference in our life. And so in chapter 12, the pivot comes. In this coming year, we focus on this theme, faith on display. Because that is what we are called to do as believers. Our faith is not a private matter just between us and God. But it is rather to be lived out. Our faith, your faith, my faith, it should make a difference in how we live each day. Christians are to be different. They're to be transformed, not conformed. As you study through the letter, you sense this tremendous burden that, that Paul is carrying. The gospel is advancing. The church is growing. And all the while, Satan continues to attack relentlessly. Paul has heard by this time of failures, of defections. And so he extends to early believers. And as it is inspired and as it is now preserved to bring it down to us these so many years later. He extends this very personal exhortation. You know, there are a couple different ways to preach these verses. Romans 12, 1 and 2, for Christians who have maybe been in church for a while, are some of the more familiar, what we call sanctification verses, right? I mean, as I said, this is kind of the, the crux of, of Christian living, where it goes back to, the plea for it. I want us this morning to see it really for what I believe it is and and the context in which we have it. A personal, very personal, intensely personal exhortation. Paul's burden that he carries for the early church, for Christians, for his brothers and sisters in Christ. Whether they be in churches, you know, in Asia or in Europe. Wherever the gospel goes, he is hearing, he is obviously traveling some, but he is hearing these stories, the words coming back to him of what's going on in churches. We, we think that all of this difficulty we face as Christians today and the, big, the broader evangelical church today, you know, the deconstruction and, and all this stuff is, is somehow brand new. This is new to the church. No, it's not. It was new to the church in the first century because the church was new. But all of this that we see today, this has been going on almost since the, the church was born. Why? Because Satan is on the attack. John, as he writes to the early churches at the very close of the first century, is going to make that statement about some. They went out from us. Why? Because they were not of us. The apostles, Paul, John, the early church fathers... They understood this. They were experiencing the tension and the difficulty and the strife. And, and they were watching people walk away from the faith. 
And it's a tragedy then, it's a tragedy now. And so Paul here writes and he makes this personal exhortation. He says here to them, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Do you get the personal exhortation. No, Paul had not yet been to Rome. He had heard of what the, what the gospel was doing there, the impact that it was making. They, though they had not yet met, are family through Christ. I love the picture of the family that is within the New Testament. And Paul loved them as family. He was burdened for them. He wanted their best. Paul opens this portion of the letter with his personal appeal to a different way of living. What he's doing here is he's seeking to apply the truth that he's declared to his readers already. Again, we always, you know, I appeal to you, therefore, because of all that has been written, because of all that we have have already discussed, here it comes. Live differently. As I said, the, the world in the first century was really not substantially different than it is in the 21st century as far as just how people are living, the pressures they're facing. Society at large lived for self gratification. Hedonism was a way of life. Have it your way was not invented in the 20th century on Madison Avenue. That's just our sinful life. That's just, that is inherent to us sinfully, our sin nature. You know, Paul divides many of his letters into doctrinal and practical sections. While the specific Application for your life may differ from that of the person sitting next to you or across the aisle from you. We are all called to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We are all called to put our faith on display. Not in a prideful way, not in a boastful way, but with humility and in with an attitude of worship. We are not to go and live out like Christians to flaunt our faith. But to live out by God's grace. You know what? It just makes a difference in my life. I respond to the pressures differently. I react to to the difficulties, to the wrongs differently. Why? Because God is at work in me. Alexander McLaren, in his introductory comments on Romans, he, he, he writes, writes this. 
In the former part of this letter, the apostle has been building up a massive fabric of doctrine which has stood the waste of centuries and the assaults of enemies and has been the home of devout souls. He now passes to speak of practice and he binds the two halves of his letter indissolubly together by that significant therefore, which is not, which is not only look back to the thing last said, but to the whole of the preceding portion of the letter. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Christian living is inseparably connected with Christian believing. Get that? McLaren makes that last statement. I love that last sentence. Christian living is inseparably connected with Christian believing. James deals with that later on in his letter. Do not talk of God and Christianity and then go live like you want to in the world. These things cannot be divided. They are together. And so, Paul here makes a personal plea predicated based on the mercies of God and the whole purpose is worship. It's worship. So I want us to walk through this this morning. Got a lot of ground to cover. I'm going to go through it rather quickly. I, um, I told you when we started this back last January, um, it's really kind of remarkable. We got through 11 chapters in a year because when I preached this 15 years ago at a previous ministry, it took me three years to get through Romans. I have 22 outlines on chapter 12. I preached 22 messages on chapter 12. I preached four messages on these first, four, uh, these first two verses. You're going to get it in one. That's just kind of how pastoring goes sometimes. Like, well, okay, we can move along a little bit more and so on and so forth. But we do have a lot of ground to cover. And so I want us to walk through this this morning and see what Paul here is writing. The plea is very, very personal in nature. I beseech you, brothers. And then Asby is translated, therefore I urge you, brethren... Here we, we read, I appeal to you, brothers, you, to you. It, it's, isn't it, it's easy for us as we sometimes read passages like this to, to kind of, you know, come way back here and get a little detached from it. But when you get a letter that is addressed to you, right, get your attention. Sometimes what's stamped on the outside of the envelope gets the attention, you know, tax office, whatever. We can all remember back when, you know, back in the day, it wasn't emails and text messages, it was actually letters. When I was in college and Renee was, we were dating and she was still back at home in Florida, we would write letters. There's a box in our basement, a box of letters. We talked to each other on this thing, and it was still tied to the wall. When you get a letter addressed to you, 
especially when you see the return address up there and it's someone that, that you know, care about, it has a different impact, doesn't it? Our oldest granddaughter, Lily, is, she's at that age, you know, a five-year-old, and she likes to get mail. So a few weeks ago, um, there's this particular Christmas decoration that, that she likes of ours, and so I, we boxed it up and I mailed it to her. And I put her name on it. So she came home from school, and there's a box at the front door with her name on it. That was a big deal. The book of Romans, as we call it, it was a letter. It was a personal letter written by the Apostle Paul to the believers at the church at Rome. The letter is received. The word goes out. A letter has come. It'll be read when we gather on Sunday. I'm making that assumption. That's how it happened. Okay. The church comes together. It comes to that portion of the service and, and the parchment is brought out and it begins to be read. And he goes through all that we have already studied and he gets here and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. No doubt they had heard of Paul. There are people, you get into chapter 16, there are people listed there that had had interaction with Paul. They had no doubt brought stories of their relationship with Paul, their interaction with him, the things that God had done through him. And here is this man writing to them. And it's really easy for us to, again, kind of detach ourselves. Let's not do that. Let's see this for what it is. It's a personal appeal, personal plea. And because it is inspired by the Holy Spirit and because it is preserved by, by God's grace, it comes down to us. And Paul may as well have written it right here to us because that's what the Holy Spirit intended. And he says, I appeal now to you, brothers and sisters in Christ. If I, I realize that as a pastor, there are certain things that come with that. 99.9% .9 of them are great blessings. <laughs> but I realize that there are some things, sometimes I can come to, to one of you and I can, I can just say, look, I, I really need for you to do or to help me with or help us with to serve in this. It's not really something you would have volunteered for. Not something really you are all terribly excited about. <laughs> but because I come and I ask you and I present to you that need, you do it. By God's grace, usually it becomes a blessing. And you're a blessing to others, it becomes a blessing to you. But I understand that. That's what Paul here is doing. He's coming and saying, listen, I am burdened for you. I am appealing to you. I beseech you. I appeal to you. The word that is used here is, is the same word used as, as when Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the comforter, the, the paracoleo. It's a call near to invite, to entreat, to urge. 
to sit down next to a brother or sister in Christ to remind them of truth, what, is, what God is doing in your life, what he wants to do in their life. Believers are called to do that, to exhort one another within the context of the local church. The writer of Hebrews talks about that in Hebrews 3 and in Hebrews 10. In a few weeks, we'll get into Romans, uh, the part of this chapter in verse 8, you know, all the, the various gifts. We're not going to break them out and study them all individually this go-round. But, but one of them is the gift of exhortation in verse 8. And here's the thing, because Paul, Paul was watching this being proven, lived out, and it was a great burden to him. Because if Satan can get you to be afraid of performing this part of your duty as a member of the body of believers, then he has done significant harm to you and to the body. This role of exhorting one another in the faith, encouraging one another in the faith. We, we get this sense that exhorting is like coming up and being all judgy, you know, and hey, you ought to be doing this. That's not what's happening here, is it? Paul's demeanor, Paul's tone is, is not condemning, it's it's not condescending. He's just coming alongside. It's like he's, he's pulling up a chair next to him and said, listen, I, I got something I want to share to you. Can, can I share this with you? This has really been a burden on my heart. Can you please? That's what he's doing. Why would that be offensive? Why would that rub us wrong? It shouldn't. You know, we're often more comfortable tolerating, you know, the general interpretation and application of Scripture rather than a very personal and specific application. But we, we can't do that here because he says, I appeal to you, to you. When I was in high school, I was involved, we part of a large high school, and I was involved in some various sports things, uh, baseball in particular, but I was also involved in speech and drama. We had some pretty elaborate dramatic productions that we would end each year with, and, um, and it was fun. It was, it was great, obviously, I guess pretty good training for what God had for me later on in life. But in all of that, there was, you know, there was lighting and various kinds and so on and so forth, and, and uh, we had a pretty impressive pretty nice place where we could do these performances and had all these lights up and so on and so forth. There's different kinds of lights, right, in theatrical performances. There are floodlights, you know, that just kind of wash the entire stage with, you know, with light. And you can change the colors and stuff like that. But it just kind of, it's the whole, the whole area, right? And then there are spotlights. And maybe there's a scene or a transition in a scene and and one part of the stage will go dark, and the other part of the stage will lighten up, and the spotlight kind of just brings it to there, to that area. Then there are follow spotlights. And there's a guy up in the balcony, and he's on this thing, and he's got the spotlight, and it just comes down whoosh, on one person. And wherever that person goes, that light follows him. That, I believe, is what Paul is doing here. Sure, it can be said, this is a general ex 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 exhortation to all of the body of Christ. Yes. But for it really to take hold, does it not then have to be 
narrowed down then to us individually. That, I believe, is what is happening. God, all through history, has made very direct, personal calls to people. And I believe through this passage, he's making one to me and to you, to us. To me, this is no less than what he did with Moses in the burning bush. This is no less powerful than when Joshua writes his closing letter and he makes that that great exhortation to the people of Israel as he's winding up his time and he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. He calls Samuel by name at night. So this is a very personal exhortation. Paul doesn't waste any time in this practical section of the letter getting down getting down to kind of the nitty-gritty. If all you take away from this is the thought that it was good for someone else, then I believe you're really going to miss the vast majority of what God is communicating to us here through Paul. It's very easy in these passages I hope so-and-so is listening to that. Maybe it's for them. I know it's for you. I know it's for me. And he's addressing his fellow believers, brethren, brothers. Because the truth is, this can only, what he's getting ready to exhort them about, can only be accomplished by believers. Truly, what what he is going to, how he is going to ask them to live, encourage them to live, exhort them to live, can only be done by believers because it must be accompanied and powered by the Holy Spirit. There are plenty of nice, kind, generous people in the world. But what he's talking about here is Holy Spirit empowered living. Not only is the plea personal, and this is where he he begins to to make this, this change. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. It is based on, predicated on, something outside of them. The mercies of God, the manifested mercies of God. You know, the word mercy... It means compassion. It means favor shown to to someone who's undeserving. It's kindness. And it is by the means of the mercies of God that we will be able to surrender to the will of God. In, In his letter to, one of his letters to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians, he calls God, he addressed God as the father of mercies. And so he says here, by the mercies, the reason why they should present themselves, why we should present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Adam Clark said it this way, by the tender mercies or compassions of God, such as a tender father shows to his refractory children, that's his rebellious, disobedient children, who on their humiliation is easily persuaded to forgive their offenses. 
by all the things God does graciously, mercifully to us, for us, on behalf of us. By the mercies of God, because of all that God has done, I am pleading with you. Now, we do not have time. I'm not going to, should say, I'm not going to take the time, this go around. I just told you, I'm condensing four into one. Paul has already walked them through in the first 11 chapters a myriad of the mercies of God, the manifestations of God's mercy and grace in their life. If you'd like this list, I'll send you my outline. Let me know. But I'm just going to run through it really, really fast because all of this is already in this letter. The mercies of God as seen in Romans. First of all, his sovereign mercy, undeserved. He talks about that in chapters 9 and chapter 11, just as a couple notion. The unconditional love in chapters 1 and 5 and 8. His empowering grace in chapters 1, 3, 5 and 6. His power to save. His all-sufficiency. Chapter 1, verse 16, we... That's our, that was our theme last year, right? Not ashamed. Well, in a few moments, we're going to sing together that hymn that Pastor Josh wrote for us last year. We'll close out our year singing that wonderful hymn that Pastor Josh wrote for us, Not Ashamed. His kindness and goodness in chapter 2 and 11. The imputed righteousness of God in chapters 3 and 4 and 5. His shared glory in chapters 2 and 5 and 8 and 9. The fact that because we put our faith, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can one day look to the fact that you will have a glorified presence in his presence. The mercies of Christ, his forgiveness and payment for our sins in chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 6 calls us to think about the freedom from sin. Someone said Jesus Christ went into the slave market of sin and purchased our freedom with his blood. And Paul talks about that in chapter 6, that, that incredible freedom from the bondage to, and slavery to sin. Reconciliation, that bringing together the two opposing entities once you're an enemy of God, now you're a child of God in chapter 5 and justification. That legal declaration that, that you are now just as if you had never sinned in chapters 2 and 3. God works in us. He talks about that in chapter 8, that, that progressive sanctification process. Conforming us to the image of Christ in chapter 8 and and again, as we've said, that, that expectation of glorification in chapter 8, verse 30. Divine sonship we can call Abba, Father. In chapter 8, faith, peace, hope, all of these are all through the previous 11 chapters. The mercies of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit in chapter 8, uh, verses 9 through 11, as well as the interceding aspects of the Holy Spirit later on in that chapter. All of these are the mercies of God. 
all that God has done for you. I'm appealing to you based on that. Why wouldn't we serve him? The most compelling motivation to serve God are the wonderful mercies of God. If you're serving God just so that pastor will think better of you or your spouse will think better of you or your neighbors will think better of you, that's going to run out quick. Because I'm going to disappoint you and your neighbors are going to make you mad. But God, his mercies are new every morning. We woke up this morning. We were able to gather with brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. These are all the manifested mercies of God. These are things God has given to us, blessed us with. Apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit working in your heart and life, you being regenerated, there's no reason you're sitting in this room here this morning. What has God done? And so he says, I appeal to you on the mercies of God. What? Why? To do what? To worship. That's the purpose. Not just to show up on Sunday mornings and worship, but to worship day in and day out. The ESV translates it, which is your spiritual worship. Of course, King James says, which is your reasonable service. That word service, is to serve, to present as a, as a service, as a ministry. To worship, that's what it's talking about. To present your bodies a living sacrifice. To yield. Just like the Old Testament priest would place up upon the altar the sacrifice. It refers both to the act and to the victim. They're in the same context. Sacrifice is a key word in the Christian life. Our souls belong to God. Therefore he wants our bodies and our minds as well. John MacArthur said of this verse, it's a fearful thing to consider that if we allow them to, our fallen and unredeemed bodies are still able to thwart the impulses of our, of our redeemed and eternal souls. There is this conflict that exists. It's ongoing. Paul talked about it. That struggle. I still have that, that old nature there, but, but I've got a new nature. They're struggling. They're at war. And that's why he's saying, so I'm appealing to you to present your bodies that living sacrifice. Usher in then the power of the Holy Spirit to live in honor to God. He had talked about this in, in a letter to, to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 9. That's why he said, I keep, my body, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection.
holy, literally set apart, sanctified. Old German schoolmaster said it this way about sacrificing his body, sanctifying his body on a daily basis. He said, I go with you three times a day to eat. You must come with me three times a day to pray. Yeah, I mean, that's just practical, right? I mean, we, we go and we live our lives, but there's this other part, the spiritual part, saying, okay, but we have to worship as well. It's acceptable. It's well-pleasing to God. It's reasonable. It's just logical. Based on all that he has done for us, predicated on the mercies of God. Isn't it not a reasonable expectation that we would give ourselves in service and worship to him? It is Satan that's unreasonable. It is the temptation to sin that's unreasonable. Satan has done nothing for you and yet he expects you to ruin your life and yield to his temptations. God has done so much. The mercies of God. And he says, so present your bodies. Worship. We gather here for corporate worship every Sunday. And we're to go out and live in worship every day thereafter. I realize not most of, most of you maybe don't go, won't go to work tomorrow. But on Tuesday, when you go back to work. As a believer, with your faith on display, that is part of your worship to God. You are taking your faith into the marketplace and living it out. Based on how you do your work, based on how you respond to things that happen there. This isn't take off my church hat and put on my work hat. That's not what this is all about. The sacrifice doesn't get up off the altar. So will you give consideration to how you can live a life that is transformed? The appeal has been made. And the exhortation has been very clearly given. The obvious question then comes... Okay, so then how? How do I do this? I know I'm supposed to. Isn't that a lot of times where we, we get stuck? I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what this Christian life is supposed to look like. But how? The Holy Spirit knows the struggle is real. The Holy Spirit knows it's not just going to be easy. Oh, okay, I'll go do that. You purpose to do that today, I guarantee you Satan's coming after you. Guaranteed. <laughs> so he addresses it. We can do this quickly. He says, do not be conformed to the world. Let's just start right there. Don't be conformed. Don't be like. Don't masquerade like the world. The word here that's being used, it is 
it's talking about the outward expression. It, it literally is to masquerade as or to put on an act. Don't act like the world. If, the whole, if you're a brother in Christ, if the Holy Spirit resides in you, then you're to live differently. You don't be like, okay, we're going to set that aside. Now I'm going to put on, you know, my go-to-work clothes. And, well, you know, you got to go, you know, get along to go along and, and, and stuff. i got to be like, I mean, pastor, you just don't understand. I mean, it doesn't work that way in real life. Yeah, it does. And God's not asking us to do something that's unreasonable or impossible. And so he says, don't be conformed like the world. Don't act like them. This, the, the, the word world here, this, this is really talking about the whole of the sinful age. The, just the, the overarching philosophy, mindset, way of life. The indication here is that the believers of that day were allowing this conformity to take place in their own lives. And Paul is basically saying, stop. Stop it. Now, like I said when I started, there's a few different ways to preach this, this verse. And I know that, you know, through the years you've probably heard it different ways. And, you know, this is a great place where sometimes preachers like to, you know, break out the list. And let me tell you what being like the world is. I'm not going to give you a list. Number one, it's not my place. God does a fine job of that. Get in the word. You'll find it. <laughs> You know the other thing I learned through the years? I'll make a list, I'll leave your thing off of it, and you'll think you're scot-free. It's not my job to make the list. The Holy Spirit's going to do that in your life, where you are right now, what's going on in your life. He's going to tell you, yep or no, don't be conformed to the world. Paul's exhorting his fellow believers, as a child of God, you're not to go around masquerading, acting like this is this worldly person, like everybody's like, oh yeah, he's one of us. No. You're to be different. Jesus used the salt and light analogy. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Dr. Kenneth Wiest in his word studies, this is really interesting. He said this about this expression here. Stop assuming an outward expression which is patterned after the world. An expression which does not come from nor is representative of what you are in the inner being as a regenerate child of God. What's going on inside of you as a regenerate child of God ought to then make you look different. Don't, I know the pressure of the world is like to, you know, get you to be the same. Mm-mm. Be different. Do not be conformed. Be transformed. Be transformed. We get, from the Greek word that's used here, we get the word metamorphosis. It's a change. It's a radical change, Right? It's also interesting because it's in the present passive imperative, which, which means it's just ongoing. 
But you can't do it on your own. The Holy Spirit is going to come along and he's going to help you do it. Remember in Matthew 17 when Jesus goes up on the mountain with the inner circle of the apostles. And we have that episode. We've, it's come to be known as the transfiguration. And they saw, got a little glimpse of the glory that was inside came out. <laughs> and they were like, whoa. They're like, let's just build three tabernacles and just stay right here. <laughs> That's really what Paul, it's just the same idea. Paul is saying, that glory that has happened inside of you, the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit that's gone on inside of you, let that shine out. Be transformed. Okay, how? By the renewing of your mind. A work that only God does through the Holy Spirit. So we present our bodies a living sacrifice. We renew our minds. We partner with the Holy Spirit in this work. The battle for the mind is a real thing. Satan is constantly nibbling away. You're, you're laying there in bed trying to go to sleep at night and in come thoughts of, of worry and anxiety and doubt and fear and whatever the case may be, right? You're going about your day, living your life, and all of a sudden this crazy thought comes in your mind. Like, where did that come from? Renew your mind each and every day. Get up on the altar. Sacrifice on the altar. God, I am yours today. Now, you know, again, we've gone through the, all the doctrine of it. This isn't, okay, i got to get saved again today. That's not what he's saying here. That's been taken care of. And because of that, I yield myself every day to God's control, the Holy Spirit's control. One last quote and we're done. Mid-1800s, one of my favorite commentators, a guy named Dr. Albert Barnes. Now he wrote this in the mid-1800s, 150, 160 years ago. I've got... Uh, some of my most cherished possessions in my library, I have not a full set, but pretty close to a full first edition New Testament of Barnes commentaries. Uh, they're up high on a shelf in my office. <laughs> they're published, many of them pre-Civil War, during the Civil War, and it, they're just awesome. But he wrote this then. I mean, it could have been written last week. This is what he wrote 160 years, 70 years ago. If all Christians would obey this, this is what he's saying in Romans 12, 1 and 2. If all Christians would obey this, religion would be everywhere honored. If all would separate from the vices and follies, the amusements and gaieties of the world, Christ would be glorified. If all were truly renewed in their minds, they would lose their relish for such things. And seek only to do the will of God. And they would not be slow to find it. If we would live like this. If we would respond positively daily. 
to this personal plea. Really from the Holy Spirit through the pen of Paul. Predicated on the mercies of God. With its purpose to worship God every day. My friends, it is time to get off the sidelines, as it, as it were, to get in the game. It's time to get serious about knowing and doing God's will for your life. It is time to put our faith on display. Let's pray. Father... I thank you for the clarity, the directness of your word. I thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that inspired Paul to write these truths that speak to us nearly 2,000 years later with the same power and the same conviction the same application. And Father, we also confess that while we know it to be true, the Holy Spirit confirms that this is truth in our hearts. We confess that it is a struggle to do it, to live it out. This is not what our old man, our old nature wants to do. It's not easy. It's not going to be understood by many around us. But Father, it's what you have called us to do. It's what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do. Help us. Help us, Father, to respond to this very personal appeal. Remind us each and every day of this, just this amazing list of your mercies that are showed to us, been proven to us time and again. Father, even as we've gathered and worshipped you here together this morning, help us to do that even tomorrow and the next day and the next. It's reasonable. It's appropriate. Oh, Father, help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior.